This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. One of the first lessons restaurateur Rose Previtt learned early in life was what she calls the secret code, the ways her family used food to hold on to culture. Previtt grew up in a small town in Ohio, eating almost exclusively home-cooked Lebanese dishes that were passed down from her great-grandparents who immigrated to the U.S. But as she writes in her new cookbook, My Don, Recipes from Lebanon and Beyond, it took a life-changing move to Russia for her to discover that following in her family's footsteps was her calling. In her new cookbook, which Bon Appetit recently named one of the best cookbooks of the year, Previtt shares some of her family's tried-and-true recipes, as well as recipes from home cooks throughout the Middle East and Eastern Europe. Many of these recipes come from areas we often think of as conflict and war zones, like Lebanon, Georgia, and Ukraine. Previtt owns four D.C.-area restaurants, Compass Rose, which serves street food from around the world, like Jamaican curried conch, Mexican tacos, El Pastor, and Algerian vegetable tagine. The Kirby Club in Virginia, which specializes in kebabs, and the Michelin star-rated Maidan, which serves food from Lebanon and other parts of the Middle East. She also runs the neighboring cocktail bar, Medina. Rose Previtt, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. That was a kind introduction. Maidan is such a rich word because, as we learned from you, it's a word that carries across regions and languages, and it means the same thing. I find it a really powerful word. And, you know, ironically, it is an Arabic word that I learned in Kiev, Ukraine, which seems like not a place where you would hear a lot of Arabic. But as I was sightseeing while my husband was working back in like, I guess it was 2009, I just kept hearing everyone say, meet at the Maidan, meet at Maidan. And I came to find out it was sort of the slang, you know, or the colloquial local way of saying like the main square, which I believe is Freedom or Independence Square technically. But generically, it's called Maidan. And so I looked into it a little bit more and realized in um, Tbilisi, Georgia, in Tehran, Iran, in all of these countries, the word is used in the exact same way to mean this kind of central gathering place. And I thought that was the power of what I wanted my restaurant spaces to be, you know, like where the food is very similar throughout a vast region, but it's actually all the same at the end of the day. In this cookbook, we not only learn recipes from home kitchens that span across the Middle East and Eastern Europe. We also learn your origin story, how you came to this idea of bringing home kitchen food from the world into a restaurant setting. So I think it's best to start there because your journey started with a three-year stint in Russia beginning around 2009. And your husband is journalist David Green, who folks may know as the former host of Morning Edition. At the time, he had gotten a job as a foreign correspondent in Russia. This was his dream job, but this is not, it was not part of your life plan. Oh, no, 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 no. Absolutely. I don't know if any of my life plan went the way I expected after I met David, but (laughs) most of that is a very good thing, actually. Um, We were living in New York City just one year 
exactly when he came home and said that there was an opening in the Moscow Bureau. And nowhere in my whole life had I desired to live in Russia. Had you ever visited before? Oh, heck no. No, I had done study abroad in the south of Spain. I traveled Europe and I had an amazing sense of adventure. And the travel bug had 100% bit me after that study abroad experience. So I, I wanted the adventure. I wasn't quite 30 years old. We didn't have kids. So logically, I could justify the decision, right? And, you know, I was also probably overly confident that study abroad had prepared me for Moscow, because it didn't. I assure you, nothing prepares you for that. Um, And I also think I underestimated the difficulty of not knowing the language before we went. Nothing I anticipated, and probably that's why we went, because had I realized how hard everything would be, I might not have agreed. You would have said no right away. (laughs) Yeah. The thing as well was that you had a career that you were headed towards in public policy. Oh, yeah. I was fresh out of grad school with like the vigor of, you know, a young person who thinks they can go out and change the world now that they've studied, you know, the law and policy. And that's what I went to D.C. for in the first place was to change the world and fix things. And I felt policy school was going to be that way. And I had worked for just one year exactly with the New York City Council, was really enjoying it. I was a policy analyst. So, yeah, it wasn't exactly in the cards to get on an airplane to Moscow exactly a year after moving there. (laughs) So you all were stationed there and Moscow. You and David also, though, while you were living there, visited lots of other places, I think more than 30 countries. And this is where most of your culinary discoveries happened. You write about how you and David would try to eat local foods wherever you went. Always. And David has a stomach of steel. I should also give credit to that. He can eat anything. That was the greatest part. We learned a lot in Russia, but the fact that we were able to travel was really powerful. It was to places we would never have been like, oh, let's go on vacation to Kazakhstan. No, like Americans rarely say that, right? But there we were, Kazakhstan, Belarus, parts of Central Asia, and then in the Middle East, which I didn't travel to as a child. So it was very cool to start going to to Egypt and Turkey regularly. Um, So it was all around, yeah, like a food-filled travel experience. When David wasn't working, um, we would explore together and often get lost together. And, you know, this is, by the way, he has a black market iPhone. I don't. This is on just the cusp of iPhone. So we're still getting around with like maps and stuff. Oh, you've got like Thomas Guy type maps. We've got our Let's Go books. (laughs) We've got all that because truly we don't have that access that we have now. So we were getting lost a lot. But what would end up happening is almost always we would find some amazing place to eat and find directions. But then, you know, stay for something, mm-hmm. <laughs> some snack, and then get back on our way. Once we figured out we, we weren't forever lost and we were going to get home, you know. You all had something called the kebab test where oh. you would have a kebab and it would tell you something about a place. We have this theory that, you know, Almost all the countries we went to had a kebab culture of some sort, and it was always tied to street food. And that's why Compass Rose's first menu was based on Your first street restaurant. food. From, yeah. Yes, I'm sorry, Compass Rose, which we opened in 2014 after getting back to the U.S. But it was a menu of street foods from around the world because that is was David and I's favorite thing. And that tended to be where our greatest memory was held, was, again, in some street stall, rarely a food truck. Let me tell you, the places we go, food trucks are a, really a privilege and, and, and luxury. Like, most of the time, you're just talking a grill or a fire on the side of the road. Like a stand. Just a stand. Yeah, there's nothing fancy about it like we have here. So I'm talking just grills, fire. Sometimes a whole goat is just hanging and they're cutting off slices of goat and throwing it on the fire. Sometimes it's camel. We did that in Oman. But we ate all of it and we couldn't have been happier. And then always had like some memory, like getting lost or finding 
someone amazing to talk to. And it always came back to the food. But the kebabs, like to me, they carry like the, the flavors of whatever country you're in. So often it's whatever spices, like when we were in Oman, it was tamarind, tamarind rubbed and marinated shrimp. And tamarind was a flavor that, for example, in Lebanese cooking, we don't use that often. So it was just a profile that I will always associate with that trip, with that experience, with the guy who was grilling the shrimp, who we begged for the recipe, who was really confused why we would want it. Oh, really? When <laughs> yeah. you asked, he thought, whoa. Yeah, I'm just, you know, there isn't like some big food culture, restaurant culture in a lot of these places. So for me to say, I'm dreaming of opening a restaurant one day. I'd really love to know how you made this. It takes a minute. And then usually there's an element of, you know, kind of surprise and then flattery. That's mm. like, oh, okay, you like it so much, you would bring it back to America and put it in a restaurant. And, yeah. you know, we, we had that experience over and over again. But I feel like, yeah, the kebab tends to be a real, you know, example of what you're going to find when you dig deeper into the food culture of that country. Well, what's interesting about your restaurants and this cookbook is that you all traveled all around the world, but your eyes are kind of set on Eastern Europe and the Middle East, and specifically places where we consider them conflict zones, where anytime those areas are brought up, it's in the context of something that has happened there. But you're drawn to to those areas. Definitely. And I, I think my sense of adventure is great. So that overcomes fear often. And David, as a travel companion who's gone into war zones for his entire career, is not afraid of anything, you know. So we were definitely not afraid to travel to parts of this region, like, you know, generally called the Middle East. A lot of us are trying to get away from that terminology, but for purposes of the cookbook, it was definitely easier to, to use that to describe the region. But I like to say we traveled from, you know, Tangier to Tehran and from Batumi to Beirut. So if you think of that region of the world, that's where we concentrated a lot of our travels from while we were in Russia. And since we've been back in the States, I go repeatedly back to to Lebanon and to Turkey. I'm dying to go back to Oman, but I haven't been there recently. And then the Republic of Georgia, which a lot of times is not associated right with the Middle Eastern food, but it is the crossroads of everything. And you'll hear me talk about it and you'll hear it in the book. It's over in the and cookbook. Over again. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm you obsessed. have a love affair with Georgia. And not a drop of Georgian blood. I mean, you know, yeah. 23 of me will confirm. What is it about the people and the places and the food? Oh, it is such a beautiful place physically, but the people, the hospitality, the food and the wine are like nothing I've experienced. And now we've been to over 60 countries. And Georgia reminded me so much of Lebanon or Lebanese culture, where it's like our love language is food. We are going to invite strangers to our table. We're not afraid of you. We want, regardless of the fact that you don't know who we are, because like you said, of conflict, if it was part of the Soviet Union for so long, that so many Americans just clump it with Russia, and it couldn't be more different. One thing that you write about so beautifully in this cookbook is kind of the realization that you had given up your dreams for your husband's. And so I want to go into that moment because it's what Russia represented for you in that moment of time. Was there a particular moment or a culmination of moments while you were there in Russia that you realized, I'm not sure who I am in this moment? It was a culmination, but it, it, and it happened slowly, you know, and I think it was, it was slow because I think I went in thinking I'd figure out something work-wise. I figured I would, worst case, bartend because that I've bartended was a 10-year bartender back in D.C. You know, I was like, there's, I'll figure it out. But as it became more and more apparent, there was nothing I could do. (laughs) work. I couldn't get a visa. I couldn't speak the language. I was starting to get 
you know, the realization that I was a housewife because we didn't have kids. And while I was traveling, it's like everyone says, the grass is always greener. You think it's so romantic. And my girlfriends at home are like, wait, all you do is follow your Go husband to different around countries. traveling. Yeah. What the hell are you complaining about? Eating wonderful food. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I know, I know. And this is an enormous privilege. And I'm 100% recognizing that. But I'm a little worker bee. I just got out of school. I'd never not worked in my whole life. And because I grew up in a very patriarchal home, it was very traditional, and we came from a very traditional background of women stay home and men work. I was determined that I was not going to follow that pattern. And I think that's why it really, really got me when I figured out that that's what I was doing. And I talk in the book about cleaning this chicken, and it's true. I was in the kitchen with you know my phone to my ear talking to David, who's in the office, about what he wanted for dinner. And I'm literally holding a whole chicken over a sink. <laughs> and I look in the mirror. There's this big mirror. And it's dark because it's winter. So even though I'm making dinner, it's pitch black. It's 4 o'clock in the sure is. It's 4 o'clock. <laughs> and I have no idea what time it is because it's never gotten light because it's winter in Russia. And I see this reflection of myself, chicken in hand, you know, phone on my ear, and I, and I had seen my mother in you this saw your mother. pose you saw so your many times. Function. And my mother is so beautiful and so amazing in so many ways. But I knew that she didn't get her dreams of what she wanted her life to be because she was raising kids and, and following a very old-fashioned way of being. And mm. I had been so determined. And there I was looking at myself like, well, here you are. There was this important trip that happened near the end of your stint. You and David traveled the full route of the Trans-Siberian Railway, which, let me get this right, it spans 6,000 miles. Yes. I bet a lot of contemplation about life and purpose happened with you on that train trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It comes full circle. This is like a full year. From the chicken moment to the train is probably like a full year of brooding, right? Because it was toward the end of the trip. I was really antsy to go back to work at this point. And then David says, my finale story is going to be this train from Moscow to Vladivostok. And it's the length of the largest country in the world. And we're going to we're gonna take the regular old train. And um, so you got to describe thing, this train. I mean, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. Surprisingly, I think everyone sees the vision of the train as cold. What's funny is it's f- below freezing every single day. Not one day did it ever get above freezing that we're in Siberia in December in 2011. Okay. So you're wearing, what are you wearing on the train? You're full? Well, by this point, I figured out what kind of winter coat. So yeah, we're all bundled up, but the train itself is actually very hot because it's fueled by coal. <laughs> it's very warm. There's a samovar full of water at the end of every train car. So the one gift the train gives you is constant hot water. So we're eating, you know, ramen noodles and stuff like that because the train car that has the dining car that has this huge menu actually turns out to have none of the food that's on the menu. And it ended up being a joke with us because, we, you know, after days, we're talking like you go 60 hours without getting off the train, right? And the yeah. only thing you have to look forward to is the meal car. So we'd go down regardless of what train we were on because we would get off. We took three weeks to take this trip. You can do it in four days if you don't get off at all. But we're getting off in villages. We took three weeks to do it. So we were on different trains. But the one thing that every train had in common, and as a food person, you can understand my utter dismay, was a complete wretched food car. And there'd be this elaborate menu, thick as the Bible. And you couldn't get anything on it. No. What could you get? Borscht. 
you and you have to borscht. describe what that is. I mean, the only thing they had was borscht. And we still laugh about it because we like chicken Kiev, stuffed cabbage. We point to all these beautiful things and they say, niet, 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 just no, no, no in Russian over and over and over. And then finally they say borscht, which is a beet-based vegetable soup. You can add meat if you want. But oftentimes on the train, there was no meat. It was just a vegetables in you know, beets, basically. So this red broth. And while good at first, it gets real, real old. Like I couldn't eat beets when we got back to the States for a couple years. Like it was it was memory of these long journeys and the just complete disappointment of thinking that you were going to get a nice hot meal and, and all you would have was borscht. So that was the state of the train. Lots of tea, lots of ramen noodles. You would get um, off for a minute, maybe at a stop, and you could buy like sausages or these um, stuffed baked goods or stuff with potatoes or cabbage or whatnot, you know, on the side of on the side of the train tracks or something when we could jump off for a few minutes. But it really wasn't enjoyable because it was freezing wherever you were. So to get off, it was like a shock of cold and then you get back on the hot train. You did have these hosts, though. You'd stop and people would host you. So what were some of the things that they fed you when you would stop at these homes? It, that And that's the beauty, and that's where I wanted to make the distinction between Moscow, because when we were out in, you know, deeper into Russia, into smaller towns and villages, we were very welcomed. People were very friendly. You know, David's approaching them as a journalist, so often we would just be talking to strangers, but they would never just leave it at, I'm going to do this interview. They would always, always invite us something. into their houses. Yeah, and so we were getting these beautiful pickled tomatoes, pickled cucumbers, pickled anything, um, and vodka. Like there's really that stereotype is real. Everyone to give us vodka. Um, but again, what is in the heart of all of these stories that I'm telling you? It's always food, and that I carried right back onto the train. And that started to bring me back to you know my somewhat angry, angsty you know musings about not knowing what to do with my life. Because now we're on the cusp of going back to the U.S. I haven't worked in three years. We're not moving back to New York. We're moving back to D.C. where I hadn't even worked a year before that. So now I'm like looking at five years of nothing on my resume and not knowing, you know, what was going to happen. And truly those many, many days of frozen tundras and little wooden houses with covered in snow. I mean, that's what you're looking at out the train you're window. you're looking out the window. And again, no iPhone. And even if we did, there's no charge. So like you can't even charge your devices. There's no electricity. So we're just thinking and talking and thinking. And that is really, if you've already been kind of musing on something, if you really want to hit it home, hit home, you know, the, the question you're asking yourself, sit on the Trans-Siberian for 60 hours at a time over three weeks and you will start to have clarity. And I realized like food was such a part of my life by denying myself, you know, even contemplating how to make a career out of it. I was kind of denying part of myself. And when I started to think about, you know, my mom, after all those years of taking care of us, she finally at 60, 60 years old, got her own restaurant. And she did finally use food to propel her dream of having a restaurant and mm. and start to feed the entire community. And she had been doing that out of our house while she catered, you know, just from our kitchen growing up. But for 10 years, she did have her own business. And I saw her pride in that. And I, I saw her success. And it, it warmed my heart so, so much. But 
what I felt bad about was she got it so much later in life that she didn't get to enjoy it. And I had always been very, I think, conservative or not trusting myself up to this point. So this was a moment of also trusting myself that I can make a career out of food. And everyone knows the statistics on restaurants. Like everyone knows that it's not a good business to go into if you want any kind of stability or work-life balance. So most of the odds are against you. But in that moment, I was like, you know what, why don't I just do it now? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to America, and I'm going to at least explore how you start your own business in food, having no idea how. But I would figure it out. Our guest today is Rose Previtt. She's a restaurateur with four restaurants in the Washington, D.C. area. She has a new cookbook called My Don, Recipes from Lebanon and Beyond. More after a break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab investing themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. If you're already a Fresh Air Plus supporter, you may have heard Terry talking about the first daily national broadcast of the show in 1987. It was still like making a national debut, both to the audience and to program directors, because we weren't on that many stations to start with. Dave Davies talking about his job driving a cab. This is a fascinating city of many diverse neighborhoods, and it was fun to just tool around in a cab all day. Or archival interviews with people like Arthur Miller, Nina Simone, and Audrey Hepburn. Timing you can't rehearse. It's an instinct. Mm -hmm. Especially comedy. I mean, that's what made... Carry unique. That's why there haven't been a whole lot of Carrie Grants. Are you not a Fresh Air Plus supporter yet? You could be. Subscribe on plus.npr.org or on Apple Podcasts. Today we're talking to Rose Previtt. She's the owner of three restaurants and the writer of a new cookbook called My Don, Recipes from Lebanon and Beyond. Previtt's restaurants include the D.C.-based Compass Rose, which serves street food from around the world, the Kirby Club in Fairfax, Virginia, and the Michelin-starred My Don, which specializes in North African and Middle Eastern cuisines. Previtt is also the co-founder of the wine company Go There Wines. 
Her love of Lebanese food comes from her upbringing. Her great-grandparents migrated from Lebanon, and she grew up with her mother cooking Lebanese dishes almost seven days a week. Rose, one of the really interesting threads in your book is what you call the inherited immigrant experience. And I um, was really drawn to that way of describing it because um, as Americans, we tend to separate ourselves from our immigrant heritage after a few generations. We separate ourselves and really don't connect it to our current day identity. Did you ever have a phase in life where you pulled away from your heritage? You know, interestingly enough, no, because I think my parents' generation did um, because of when they grew up. They grew up in um, civil rights era Detroit. My mom did. And it was a time of danger to look different or not American. And that was very much what my mom's Lebanese family was. And so Arabic was taken away, like, don't speak this in school, even though my mom grew up with her grandparents and as a kid did speak it. It was taken away um, for safety. And so their generation pulled away. Um, But they kept it behind closed doors, you know, in the home. It was always the food. And then in moving us to a small town in Ohio where Ada, I grew up, Ohio. Ada, Ohio, population 3,000. It is not a suburb of anything. The closest cities are Dayton is about an hour away. Toledo is about an hour and a half away. And there they knew they were going to have to overcompensate because there were no Lebanese restaurants until you got to Toledo, mm-hmm. <laughs> about an hour and a half away. So we were going to have to, they were going to have to go on overdrive of passing down culture And food was the way that they did it. And it was very much, my mom did an amazing job of making sure we were proud of it. Even though it was quickly realized that we were different, that was part of our identity and something to be proud of. And I grew up in a place that while very, we were very different, we weren't made fun of. I was very fortunate. Like we weren't made fun of for being different. We always felt a little odd, especially with. You felt other. We felt other. We had the garlic smelling house and we had, you know, we went to school with our clothes smelling like food. Nobody else's did. Our lockers. We had all those stories, but we were very welcomed. And and by high school, it was like we were the house to eat at. Like that's definitely where you went for the good food. You know, What kinds of stuff would your mother make? Oh my gosh. I mean, all of the favorites. I mean, back then, this is like 90s Ohio. You were drinking Mountain Dew and pizza at other people's <laughs> birthday parties. Yeah. <laughs> but at ours, we were either doing like authentic Sunday sauce, which let me tell you includes pig's feet and things like that. That's, you know, if we did the Italian stuff. But my mom would do, you know, kusa, like the cord out squash that are stuffed with um, lamb and rice, which is one of the recipes in the cookbook. Tabbouleh instead of just a green salad, we'd have a parsley tomato bulgur salad, you know. That was how the messaging was. This is who you are, and we're not going to hide from it. In fact, we're going to present at all of the these parties. The teenagers were eating well, They huh? were eating well. And I have three brothers, so there was constantly food. There was a lot of big boys who were eating in our house. And, you know, there was there was always food on the table regardless of what time you stopped by. And um, we just came to identify pride with it. And, again, because we weren't, you know, we were accepted in the community. It was probably a little bit easier. And I know that's harder for people who, who do deal with bullying and things like that. But we, we didn't. And very quickly, we almost became cool for it. Um, it's still a little odd to be called exotic in high school, but that was a word often. You were called exotic. I was called exotic. Um, other things as well. But again, often by just almost like people didn't know they were saying something inappropriate or asking what I was. That was like a daily basis. Like, well, what are you? Because mm. you couldn't be placed exactly. Mm-hmm. So I quickly had to become, you know, articulate in how to explain where I'm from and why. 
but that inherited immigrant experience was like, but I'm not, you know, myself internally, I felt guilt because I knew I wasn't born there. I knew my mother wasn't born in Lebanon, but I was claiming this this history and this culture and wanting to make sure that was okay because I hadn't suffered through the immigration that my grandparents had gone, you know, generation had really suffered through. But so much of what they went through was passed on. Like my mom grew up with her grandparents who were the ones that came from Lebanon. And she, you know, the hard work, the the poverty was inherited, you know, and there's just certain traits that are passed down to you from that, that I felt were a huge part of my life and, and defined who I was. So it was kind of saying, it's okay for me to to own this. You all would go to Detroit often, though. Your parents, your mother in particular, is from uh, Detroit. Your aunts and uncles uh, live there, your grandparents. And Detroit has a very large Lebanese population. It actually does hold the distinction, or it held for, for a long time, as having the largest Middle Eastern population outside of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So you can get all types of food there. Lebanese food is just a regular Thing that you can get just about anywhere. What did visiting Detroit as a kid mean to you? Oh, well, you know, I mean, it was so fun because all our cousins were there. So there was cooking, there was family, and then there was the stocking up because we lived a little bit farther away. For my mom to keep catering and keep Lebanese food on our table, we had to go to all the, the stores in Detroit and also in Toledo. And I was shocked when I got to D.C. and I couldn't find the Lebanese stores that seemed so prevalent in you know, Toledo and in Detroit. So that, those little trips were like a huge part of my upbringing and such a fun, fun part of it. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest today is restaurateur Rose Previtt. She has a new cookbook called My Don, Recipes from Lebanon and Beyond. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When your celebration of life is prepaid today, your family is protected tomorrow. Planning ahead is truly one of the best gifts you can give your family. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. So I want to talk just a little bit about some of the dishes in the cookbook and some of the things you discovered just through your travels. Like there's a recipe in your book for something really simple, tomato cucumber salad. Mm -hmm. But you write how you don't know if there's a country in the world that does not have a version of this salad. Did you start to see patterns or similarities like this as, as you move through these different regions? Oh, for I'm sure. thinking about the bread, yeah. too. The bread, the kebabs, the tomato cucumber salad was just on repeat with slightly different spices or oils. You know, the Georgians put walnuts in it. Lebanese put mint in it. You know, it was just like 
places that seem very different but did have a similar dish. Um, in fact, our bread in the recipes in the book but is the flatbread that we use at Maidan. People always try to call it like pita or naan, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Those are different, and, and we actually don't title it. We, we just call it flatbread because the recipe was inspired by multiple places. And even the journey of bread that's made in a tandoori-style oven. So we use a clay oven that's fueled by fire. We yes. don't use a commercial oven. It's kind of crazy, actually. But it works. Do you have a favorite dish that your mom would make for you when you were a child? I mean, the kibinai, it's basically a lamb tartare in, in more common terms. And how do you make it? You have to go to, in my world, the Lebanese butcher or a halal or Middle Eastern butcher to get a very fat-free um, grade of finely um, ground lamb. So the fat content is basically the important thing. you got to take most of it out. So it's like a very pure, um, very lean lamb that's cut with a certain dye. And then bulgur, which is the basically, you know, or wheat germ, as it's referred to, um, that's basically what makes kibbe kibbe. You can put bulgur in potatoes, that recipe's in the cookbook, in, in pumpkin. As long as there's bulgur in Lebanese cooking, it is at that point, kibbe. So kibbe nai is raw lamb. Um, our recipe is very basic. It has um, ground onion in it, you know, salt and pepper. It's served with olive oil. It's served with raw onions and and pita, what you guys, what's called pita bread. We called it Syrian bread growing up, but Lebanese flatbread. And you make a bite with the onion and the oil mm. and, and the ground lamb. And it's a beautiful dish, which... Um, my family is Syrian Orthodox, so as a Christian family, we also put a, a cross. We make a cross in the middle because my mom always told me it was to pray that no one got sick on the raw meat. So oh. you pray and you put a cross, and that's yeah. how it's presented to you. Sounds a little weird, but it, I think the nostalgia of it and the, just the flavor is super unique. And we only did it for special occasions. You know, it wasn't an everyday dish, and so I also associate it with really special holidays. And when I traveled in Lebanon, though, I'll tell you, I went to both my grandfather's village and my grandma mother's village they actually make this dish very differently and does so it taste different i acknowledge too. that in the book actually yes. there's the recipe from bishmazine which is northern lebanon where my grandfather's from they use a lot more spice and they serve it with a pepper sauce that's almost like a harissa so different than the way my mom's family does it which is just way more flavor of the ingredients and the raw meat not covered up by any spices and the harissa was just like a mind-blowing to me we never did that um, but my grandfather's family did and probably someone from north africa who immigrated at some point to lebanon brought that to this village and everyone just from this village makes it that way you have a section in the book where it's like a list of maybe a dozen things that we should all have in our pantry if we want to delve into these recipes. Can you give us a simple recipe to use for something like za'atar, which is an ingredient that is typical in Lebanese food? I mean, the most simple is just what we call talami bread, which is just dough that has some olive oil on top of it and then sprinkle with za'atar. So I'm not pushing you in the book to make your own za'atar blend. That would be hardcore, and you can do it if you want. But there are amazing mixes available in a lot of stores now, even in not specialty Middle Eastern stores. Za'atar is a plant. It's in itself is a is an herb, but it's it's blended with a bunch of other herbs, and that is you know the beauty of the region too. 
it's the same name, but different regions have different ones. Like there's Lebanese, Palestinian. There's even Aleppo blend. So specifically from Aleppo, not just from Syria, but from Aleppo. So it's a very like regional specialty that families are very proud of. So don't go making your own. You can buy a lot of really good ones. And all I have to do, and I just did it at Christmas with my mom, is she had some, she had bought some pita that she decided was not acceptable at the local grocery store. So we cut it up. We put olive oil on it. We spread za'atar. We mixed it with olive oil and za'atar, threw it in the oven and made za'atar chips. Mm. And then you can use those for any of the dips. It makes your hummus a hundred times more exciting. You can just put some olive oil. I recommend unfiltered Lebanese olive oil on top. And then you sprinkle za'atar on your everyday grocery store hummus. And it just makes it so much more exciting. I hope you use our recipe to make your own. But um, (laughs) za'atar changes everything. And so I think keep it in your pantry. Even if you're not making an elaborate recipe, you have old dough that you didn't you you had left over from the bread recipe or you made homemade pizza and you had some left over use that za'atar throw it over olive oil stick it in the oven and it will taste like you spent hours making it food mm-hmm. is political what we choose to eat who has access to it i mean it's a story shaped by economics and geography and immigration these are all things you're thinking about all of the time and i think you know the, the moment it all collided was in my realization living in Russia that I couldn't actually get Georgian wine at the time. It was embargoed. At the time, Russia was punishing Georgia for a skirmish that they had had a few years before we got there. So all the expats are like, you got to have the Georgian wine. It's the cheapest, highest quality wine you'll ever have. But, oh, sorry, you can't, you can't actually get it here right now. And once I dug into, like, the politics of it, I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> But then I thought for the first time after policy school, oh, my God, wine is geopolitical. This is all my world crashing together. You're punishing this country because the only people buying Georgian wine back then were Russia, and it really affected the economy. The bright side is it caused Georgia to have to start selling to other countries, which is now why we can get it so easily, and a lot of people in in Europe can get it so easily. Oh, interesting. But that was a shift out of necessity because they were decimated. The wine industry was decimated once Russia did that. But then I said to myself, that's where the policy person came in and thought, well— when I open this restaurant, I'm going to sell as much Georgian wine as humanly possible. It's my Putin protest. And, you know, I have to say I was very proud. Compass Rose for the first few years did sell more Georgian wine mm-hmm. than any other restaurant in America. But then as we traveled, I realized Georgia's not the only place. They have this 8,000 years of winemaking that nobody knows about. Because in the U.S. and the Western markets, we're always like France There's a certain Spain, place. Spain, place. And in Italy, yeah. that's it. There's like three European countries. That's it. And it's like, wait a second, Lebanon, my ancestral homeland, full of amazing wine that is very hard to access in the United States. And so I realized this is a political problem because why don't we? Because of geography, because of politics, because of socioeconomic reasons, because of war. That's the only reason we don't know about Georgian wine or Lebanese wine. And so, yes, I've made it partially my mission to combine my you know, policy, combine my food and, and policy background in this way. There's so much conflict happening in these these regions at this very moment. I'm thinking about the origin of Maidan for you came from a visit to Ukraine and you hearing Mm -hmm. that term. How do you reconcile all of that as you're trying to provide joy, a space where people are consuming food that comes from these places while also holding space for people who are really dealing with terrible things. Mm-hmm. No, from, from day one of opening Maidan, my hope was to welcome people into the space the way people had 
in the countries that we visited. So our opening team went to Tunisia, Morocco, Lebanon, the Republic of Georgia, and Turkey. Those were the five countries where we did a research trip. A lot of countries you do associate with conflict. And we had the absolute opposite experience, right? We could not have felt safer. We could not have felt more welcomed. And so Maidan's intention from day one was to extend that hospitality and, and again, inform people that the places that they only associate with things like the Arab Spring or communism actually have people just like us, trying to be just like us, which is safe and care for their families and feed their families. And, you know, food to me has always been that equalizer, the thing we all need. And what we hope with the cookbook and what the restaurants are always, you know, trying to do, even in the hardest of times like we're in right now, is to continue that message of like, again, back to the obligation that I have to keep telling people, you know, about these beautiful places I was fortunate enough to see and to try to make them seem more approachable through the food. Rose Previtt, thank you so much for this conversation and this cookbook. No, I appreciate you letting me have it. Thank you for listening. Rose Previtt's new cookbook is called Maidan, Recipes from Lebanon and Beyond. Coming up, we remember actor Tom Wilkinson, who died on Saturday at the age of 75. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing, but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Actor Tom Wilkinson died on Saturday at the age of 75. He caught the eye of American movie audiences in the 1997 film The Full Monty, where he played a laid-off factory manager who joins a ragged band of male strippers. Wilkinson was born in Yorkshire, England, and was familiar to British TV and stage audiences for years, appearing with Helen Mirren in the Prime Suspect series and in many other roles. In the 90s, he turned his focus to movies with roles in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Shakespeare in Love, Batman Begins, and Selma. He earned two Oscar nominations, one for his performance in the 2001 movie In the Bedroom, where he and Sissy Spacek starred as a couple dealing with the murder of their only son. His second Oscar nomination was for his role in the movie Michael Clayton. Dave Davies spoke with Tom Wilkinson in 2005 when he was starring in the movie Separate Lies. He played a high-powered British lawyer whose well-ordered life is shattered when he learns about his wife's infidelity. In Separate Lies, you play a powerful lawyer in a seemingly happy marriage, but who discovers all kinds of problems. What, what drew you to this role? I like the idea of playing somebody from the upper middle class because it's not something I do. It's not a class that I... uh, My background 
is is much more sort of blue collar. So I thought it was a wonderful opportunity to to play somebody from uh, uh, the upper middle class. One of the characteristics of that class, I am led to believe, is that they 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 believe in continuity. But the continuity is not the continuity between now and the future. It's a continuity between. The past and the future. They want things to be like they always have been. If it was good enough for my father and my grandfather, it's certainly good enough for me and good enough for my children. You know that in a certain sense, they lead a rather unexamined life, uh, and that's 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 the sort of penalty that that poor old James Manning pays when he realizes that his wife is being unfaithful to him, because of course his first response would be. But why? She's got everything she needs. What could possibly motivate her to have an affair with this, with this fellow, and so on and so forth? So it's that sort of, you know, the more you can establish somebody reveling in the in the things of his, of his power and wealth and so on, the more you'll, um, the the more fun the audience will have watching him sort of looking. Looking again at the at his job and thinking, is this was this the best job I should be doing? Shouldn't I be doing something else? Is this was this the right house to be living in, or should I have lived something? You know, seeing somebody sort of rebuild the sort of moral universe that has been shattered. You were born in England. Your 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 dad uh, was a farmer when you were young, and then you moved to Canada. I think from ages mm. five to eleven, right? And then mm. and then back to England, uh, where you're. Mm. Father pursued a, a number of different um, activities, and I'm wondering. Um, you know, it's a pretty varied background. Um, kind of what those travels might have exposed you to, or that, that I mean, did that affect the kind of creative insight that 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 you drew on in your career? Uh, I'm not sure. The thing, what it created here's here's the situation. As far as my family are concerned, my, from my father's family and indeed my mother's, but my father's particularly. They were farmers in the same bit of England uh, for a thousand years. There is just no evidence mm. that anybody, any member of my family, was anything other than a farmer. And my my grandfather was a farmer. My father was a farmer. And to all intents and purposes, had things turned out differently, I would, I would have been a farmer, and my brothers would have been farmers. At the point, but what happened, of course, that this was kind of shattered. This sense of continuity was shattered completely. Uh, uh, for one reason or another, the farm went, and there was no ever, never any question that I was going to follow in my father's footsteps. So this sort of, this sort of, um, as it were, discontinuity, perhaps gave me a kind of rootlessness. There was no home. There was no. Mm-hmm. Nothing I could sort of return to. Nothing I could say. You know, that's the real me there. You know, I it's my, I should be running the farm, but my brother is running the farm. There was no farm. There was nothing of that. So, and I think in a certain sense, rootlessness, in that sense, is 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 quite good for an actor. It's not necessarily going to make an actor, but it means they are much more wide ranging. In the things that they will allow themselves to be influenced by, that uh, they're perhaps not as set in their cultural ways as perhaps they could be if they had, in a, had that thing which we crudely call 
a strong sense of themselves. An actor probably doesn't have a strong sense of himself in that sense. And I think probably that's one of the reasons. Reinventing yourself, in effect, uh, yes. in life and on yes. the stage, right? right. Yes. You were introduced to a much wider audience with the film The Full Monty. Um, and to remind our audience, this is the story of a group of men who lose their jobs when their Sheffield steel plant closes. And then, and one of them hatches upon this idea of um, creating a male uh, strip team. This is a, a remarkable film, and it is, was hugely successful. But I can imagine when you looked at the script, you must have thought, my heavens, what is this? What was your reaction? I had... Uh no hesitation whatsoever in doing this this film. I read it, and the first time I read it, I thought, this is good. And I went to get it made. And it was a point in my career where I decided I'm going to stick with films. I'm not going to do any more television or theater. I'm going to stick with films until I find out whether it's going to work for me or not. But with this one, I just simply had no, not the faintest hesitation in, in, in doing it. What told you it was going to work? Because it seems to me so much of what works here is... I don't know, the chemistry, these guys, the way, the way you all do it. Yeah, well, I thought the, kind of, the, the, the writing was, was wonderful and, and, and worked perfectly. But added to that, I thought it was one of the most brilliantly cast movies that I've ever seen. You know, there were lots of actors in it, none of whom I'd ever heard. Robert Carlyle I knew, but the rest of them I'd never heard of. And they turned out that they were just perfect for it. And that together with, you know, all the rest of the kind of imponderables that go to making a film. It absolutely achieved what it set out to do. Um, how, do you, how do you decide which roles you will take? You it's drawn simple, to? Dave. You just, you just follow your nose. You, you ask those simple, really instinctive questions like, you know, can, can I shine in this role? Can I do this role better than anybody in the world? Is there something in it that I recognize? Nothing, you know, it's not really not to do with the money or the director or the other members of the cast. But the first simple thing is, am I going to enjoy playing this character? And it's childish, I know. And I shouldn't, from my great age, be admitting to something so sort of, you know, do I like the look of this toy? Or am I going to wait to the next toy shop and see if there's something even cuddlier? No. That's that's how that's how it works. It's 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 purely instinctive decision. Well, Tom Wilkinson, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Dave Davies speaking with Tom Wilkinson in 2005. He died on Saturday at the age of 75. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we talk to Bloomberg reporter Emma Court about Ozempic and the new class of medications revolutionizing the medical treatment for people with obesity. She'll share more about how they work, the latest research on the long-term impacts, and explain how and why the shortages and high costs has widened the divide on who has access. I hope you'll join us. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorak directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. With benefits kicking in as close as 100 miles from home, you can protect your travel plans whether you're driving across state lines or flying cross-country. Learn more at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.